Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by Awaza. Awaza is well known for their line of outdoor pond and water garden products and are now stepping into the indoor aquatics market. Their lineup includes products like the internal BioPlus filters and external Biomaster canister filters. Both lines of filtration offer models with heater integration to help you declutter your tank and show off your plants and fish. Awaza also has a great selection of aquariums in their BioOrb line. Their BioOrb Cube Aquarium actually won the award for best aquarium product at the SuperZoo trade show. So check out these great products and more by clicking on the links in the show notes. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Monday, May 13th, 2019. My guest today is Dr. Melissa Gibbs. Melissa is the Director of Aquatic and Marine Biology at Stetson University, located in Central Florida. Melissa's research includes areas such as spring fish ecology in Blue Spring State Park, armored catfish, and amphibian development biology. So Melissa, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking time this Monday morning to chat with a, a fish nerd on um, hopefully what's going to be a, a variety of topics and really educational and informative to the audience, um, and especially myself, because I've, I have been wanting to have somebody to come on and talk about, um, you know, I don't want to jump straight into it, but I've been wanting somebody to come on and talk about what's happening um, with the, the manatee population in Florida, um, and in particular, the um, impact that invasive armored catfish, and I'm going to butcher the scientific name, but Terryglopplichthys disjunctivus? How did I do? Yeah, ter- yeah Terryglopplichthys oh, disjunctivus. All yes. right, close, close. But so, the com- close. so like the common pleco, right? The common pleco, the uh, sailfin catfish, right? It's, it's similar. It's not actually a pleco. Um, pleco is short for placostomus, which is another genus of armored catfish, but they are very similar and they look an awful lot alike. So in the trade, this isn't the common, this isn't the common pleco then? Well, I think that in the trade, it, the common pleco is now used to probably describe a lot of different species that all look very similar. Uh, but there are about 800 or so different species of loricariate armored catfish. So how many of those are included under the common pleco term or not, I'm not sure. But oh. pleco is short for costumus. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I know. So uh, from doing Google images, I mean, they, they pull up what would appear to be like some side-by-side comparisons of different species, and they all look very, very similar. They do. They mm-hmm. look very similar. And just in particular, the, the vermiculated sailfin catfish, this one just happens to be the most abundant and is the one that's running the most rampant. Right. So in central Florida, there are three species of pterygoplichthys. There's disjunctivus, anisitsi, and multiradiatus, and they all look very similar. And I would be hard-pressed to identify you know, which was which, but we did figure out that in Blue Spring, at least, it's predominantly pterygoplichthys disjunctivus, but it probably is a blend. Um, they probably are breeding, um, crossbreeding and um, blending their genomes now that they're in the same place. Interesting. Okay, so before we go f- too far down the, the meat and potatoes topic of this episode, which I'm super excited to do, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your backstory and how you got to this point of, um, I mean, one, it's super awesome to be the director of aquatic and marine biology at a university. I mean, that's just, that's really, really cool. Um, but how did you get to this point? I guess, how did you get to, uh, you know, focusing on these particular research areas in academia? So, I mean, working on armored catfish in particular or how I got into being a marine biologist or an ichthyologist, which is really how I would describe myself. Yeah, let's let's go the ichthyologist route because, we, you know, you and I, we had a little bit of a, of a talk, uh, kind of pre-interview before we kick things off. And you have um, you are going to be unique in all the guests that I've had. Uh, in that you don't have a tr- the traditional like super fish nerd fish room multiple tank syndrome addiction like you know fifty five fifty six other people that I've interviewed have has had. Right, so I'm definitely a, a fish nerd, but but yeah, not keeping tanks. So um, my dad's a, a biology professor, and so I was always interested in science. But watching National Geographic. Um, when they did an episode on the Galapagos Rift Zone when I was about 12. And at that point, I decided, okay, I'm going to study deep sea fish. So it was deep sea and fish that were um, a passion, but loved fish from that point onward. I got my bachelor's degree in marine biology, studying deep sea fish, my master's degree in marine science, 
studying deep sea fish. And then by my PhD, I was studying sensory systems in goldfish, of all things. So I was keeping goldfish in the lab, doing brain surgery on them. And um, that gradually um, you know, morphed into a postdoc studying sturgeon. And then I got to Florida for my first job and discovered the freshwater springs, which were just amazing, and realized that there had been very little published on the fish that live in those springs. Um, and soon after that, discovered the armored catfish living in the springs as well. And, and then I knew that I'd found uh, something I could really sink my teeth into um, because the armored catfish have not been, had not at that time at least, been intensively studied. Uh, their biology had not. So that's when I got started with armored catfish. Mm-hmm. That, that's very cool. And just to kind of go back and, and pay a little homage to your previous research, was there anything, I mean, I guess what notable could you share about uh, your, re- your research on goldfish? So we discovered they uh, do indeed have um, color vision. So we looked at col- areas of the brain that were responsible for color vision and for black and white um, vision. So I was kind of tying in brain anatomy to function. So I was recording electrical activity in their in their brains. Um, and what I did discover with goldfish is that um, not all of them made good subjects for um, behavioral experiments because some of them just did not cooperate. Um, <laughs> you, you could not train them to uh, to respond to flashes of light, and, and other ones were just fine. So um, probably some of your audience out there um, – knows about goldfish having particular personalities or um, you know, behavioral traits, but, but that was a, a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I know on the internet, uh, we like to call them the derp fish, the little uh, kind of derpy guys. So now in my head, and, and in many people probably listening to this, when they think of a goldfish, they're thinking of maybe a fancy variety, um, a Ryukin, a Ranchu, um, I guess, but my assumption though, would that be in the lab, you're probably using more of a common goldfish, like a feeder fish? Exactly. Okay. Common goldfish, yeah. Okay. Um, and then how about the sturgeon? The sturgeon, we were looking at the development of the lateral line system. So kind of um, getting embryos um, and raising them up. And while we were doing that, we were able to map out how the lateral line system um, develops or where it appears first and, and how the um, the nerves um innervate those lateral lines. So it was, I was a neuroscientist uh, from my PhD and from my postdoctoral position. So, Yeah, and that was, defi- that was definitely one of the things I noticed was that your PhD was in neurobiology, which is yes. like really cool. It is. Now, most people are, when I was in my program, were using the uh, you know, fish and things to study the neurobiology, and I was using the neurobiology to study the fish. So again, I was still a fish nerd. Um, in those terms. And then anything in particular with what, you, what you've what uh, you researched in lateral lines on the sturgeon? Um, it would probably be pretty difficult to describe exactly <laughs> what, uh, what we did, but more or less, I mean, we mapped it out and, and got the timing down um, for it. But uh, Gotcha. No, that's, yeah. that, that's really, really awesome. Uh, and then so then moving forward then into the, the meat and potatoes of this to talk about uh, the armored catfish in Blue Springs. So um, you... You arrived in Florida first, correct? Yes. Got here in 1998 and started messing around in the springs in um, 99-2000. And a colleague who likes to free dive in the spring said, oh, yeah, we started seeing these armored catfish like the year before. And, you know, we saw a few of them. And then the next year there were more and they, um, you know, kind of took off from there. And that's when I started to, to research them. Mm-hmm. And now having done or having, you know, gone to school for your um, uh, bachelor's and master's programs in California and then doing a PhD in Delaware, uh, you know, when I went to, to Florida and people that listen to this know that the first thing I thought of when I go into the water, or actually the first thing I, I, I did when I got into the rental car and we're driving around is I'm just assuming that there's alligators everywhere. Uh, oh yeah. When, when you started diving, I feel like you had to have had those same kind of feelings like I do, which Florida natives just kind of brush off. But I feel like that's a real thing, right? And you did you feel the same thing? It, well, in in the springs, the water is crystal clear, and so um, 
you can see whether or not there's an alligator in the water is you know if you're if you're paying attention um we did get you know fairly unnerved initially by the you know manatees sneaking up on us um or suddenly the the tarpon are surrounding us or the the gar that were almost as big as we were um but generally we avoid the areas where the alligators might be hanging out um we've had a few close encounters um but uh, but but generally it, it's been okay. Oh my goodness! Now close encounter, like the alligators just kind of coming, taking a look at what's going on, and then swimming off. No, it's more that when we've been um, sampling uh, in areas of the spring run that um, are not open to the public, but when we have our our permit to sample in areas of the spring run that are closer to the river, closer to the dark water, um, that we've had uh, an encounter. Um, where we got a little too close to the dark water and startled an alligator and it took off and you can you can tell by the movement of the water whether it's an alligator taking off with its tail that goes side to side or a manatee taking off and the tail goes up and down so you get a different different water pattern and then when we've been um hunting armored catfish um with our pole spears um we had an encounter where a biologist, uh, the park biologist, was actually going after a, a tilapia, um, missed it, hit a log instead, and right next to the log was a six-foot gator. A six-foot gator is too small to you know, do anything to a human, but it was big enough on the eyes. So it startled the gator. Gator took off down the spring run, and all my brain allowed me to to think was pterosaur, um, you know, sturgeon, oh, you know, some anything but alligator. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think the alligator was more startled than um, than we were. Six six foot or not, I mean, it, it could be a three foot object moving fast in the water, and I would I would be you know my heart rate would definitely accelerate. Yeah, I definitely, did. and you know, and the six foot gator, half of that is tail, mm-hmm. you know, so the the body itself. But anyway, it was uh, it was kind of exciting. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I've done so. I lived in San Diego for a little bit, and I used to uh, kayak fish uh, the La Jolla kelp beds, and so to go for white sea bass, we would launch very very early in the morning, uh, maybe th- like three or four o'clock in the morning. We're, we're launching from the beach, and it's incredibly calm out there as you're paddling out, and you would have either the California sea lions. Um, or maybe a, a different type of seal would come up and they would breach and you, you couldn't see them, but you could hear them. You could hear the noise and you could hear the air. And, yeah. you know, for, for me, again, just kind of being very f- understanding that I'm not the apex predator when I'm just kind of floating on my kayak, immediately thinking it's like a great white shark that's going to breach exactly. and knock me out of my kayak. <laughs> like, yes. I, I can definitely appreciate, you know, the the accelerated heart rate of when there is something like when there's movement, when something's happening. And you're not at the top of the food chain in that particular scenario. Like, it's very, very, very unnerving. Yeah, I think that's also why when we first started being out there, the um, the manatees would freak us out sometimes because they'd sneak up on us. And they were just curious, but they did sneak up. And, and they're, they're very, very large. And they're huge. That would be so I love manatees, right? Like, the um, nickname is the sea cow, correct? Yes. So I, yeah. I love manatees. Um, you know, if, if I have the chance to, to, to go in and see one in person, and I understand that there's um, interaction, right? Like the human interaction is, is like you don't touch them. You have to stay very, very far away. Um, yeah. I, I think I'm applying some of my whale watching uh, experiences to, <laughs> to manatee watching. But I mean, they're, they're incredibly majestic. And again, that's why I wanted to have somebody to come on and talk about what's, what's occurring in Florida with the manatee populations. Um, but yeah, they're, they're massive. And to be crept up on one, um, I, I could definitely see how that would be a startling experience as well. It definitely is, but it, but it is very cool. Um, there have been a few times and we've been um, manhandled by manatees and, you know, yes, where uh, they approach, we try to back off and uh, hopefully they'll go along their way. But every now and then you get one that has had a lot of interaction with humans. Maybe it was um, rescued as a calf and, uh, raised at a wild animal park and then released again, but it's it's used to people, and so it can be kind of difficult sometimes to extract ourselves um, from a manatee. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, so is it is it like manatee bear hugging you? Yeah, we've had that happen, or kind of you know yanking on our um, you know our arms, or um, we wear a, a shirt with our little Stetson crew uh, information on it, and sometimes they'll yank on the shirt or 
you know, something like that. But they they're trying to they seem to be trying to get us to play with them, which, of course, we're not going to do. We're you know, not going to touch them. And um, it, yeah, they are it, very curious. It, it's, it's very hard to detach like just the you know, the, 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 like the young boy curiosity fascination with just like wanting to bear hug a manatee with like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like, that's a wild animal. We need to respect them. But I I mean, for them, for them to initiate that engagement and to have that, you know, split second or two seconds of like manatee bear hug or them playing with you is got to be like kind of a pure joy thing. Once you realize it's a manatee and not an alligator trying to death roll you. Right. Although we, there was one manatee um, years ago who was extraordinarily, friendly and she taught her calves to also be friendly and her name was georgia and she would chase us uh down the spring run and whenever we stopped to do our sampling you know, she would not really slow down and kind of you know run right into us um, again <laughs> trying to um to interact uh with us and that was and with her i had a moment thinking one time that you know she, as she's grabbing me and hugging me that um, it almost seemed like she was trying to sit on me and, and this could end badly. Oh my goodness. I mean, she nev- you know, never seemed aggressive, but you could, you could see how, yeah, if she was just kind of playing with me, um, yeah. knock you underwater. Yeah. If she was bear hugging uh, you and kind of kept you underwater for too long. Yeah. That's, a, that's not a good thing. Yeah. And again, she just was interacting, um, seeming to be you know, curious and wanting that, that human touch. But I was always glad that I was out there with a, a colleague that you never go out sampling alone. And that's probably one of those reasons, oh just my, in case. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. She probably thinks maybe you've got one of those uh, giant milk bottles that she was used to and she, if, if she was uh, one of the rescued ones, right? Yeah. And something like that. Or, or just maybe got petted too many times when she was um, at the, you know, the sea park at sea world or wherever she was i can't remember which park oh wow yeah um, just hearing you in, but... hearing you tell those stories and your experiences i'm just running through episode titles of of how i can title this thing with ran over a manatee or manatee bear hug so i'm gonna have to yeah, I'm, yeah. Gonna, I'm gonna have to work on episode <laughs> titling but that's that you're, you're giving me really good information melissa that's awesome um so to to go back so we're in the late 90s uh colleague has introduced you to you know the blue springs and and you're you guys are noticing the increase in the in the armored catfish um so where do where do you go from there then in academia and infield research so I started collecting uh, armored catfish. We started catching them, um, and it's not necessarily an easy thing to do because they're benthic fish. Um, so we tried using turtle grabbers, which are on a, a pole, and they've got kind of a, a little trigger on the end of it. So you kind of get it um, kind of across their backs, almost like a saddle, and push down, and it kind of clamps on them a little bit. So we tried catching them that way with some success. We could grab them by hand. Um, initially. Um, And then um, that started being a little more difficult. We started trying to use a mullet net, um, cast net underwater, kind of draping it over the fish, then porpoise down under and grab them out of the net. We tried using a bunch of different methods uh, to catch them. And then what I was doing was collecting basic data of their length and their mass and uh, collecting their um, ovaries and testes so I could start doing some reproductive studies, just some kind of basic life history information about them because I I wasn't able to find a lot about them. Um, A few articles here and there, um, mostly out of Brazil, um, where they're native. Um, A lot of things were in, uh, or a number of things were in Portuguese, um, which I couldn't read. some in German, which I sort of can, um, but there really wasn't a lot out there. So basic information um, and collected uh, data every year um, throughout the year, trying to get things during the uh, the seasons of the year to see how things varied, um, and and also kind of observing what the catfish were doing. So as we're sampling other fish in the spring run, we could see yeah the catfish are air breathing and going up to the surface to breathe air, um, kind of seeing um, what their behavior was like on the the benthos, um, you know where they were hanging out in the spring run, uh, that sort of thing. And and benthic uh, to go back to that terminology, that's that's their uh, a bottom dwelling, right? Bottom dwelling, okay. yes, associated with the bottom. So they're they're very flat. Um, generally, any fish that's very flat on its underside is a benthic fish. Um, it's 
it evolved to hang out flattened against the bottom, and that helps. Mm-hmm. And like in Blue Spring, very fast-flowing water, and so if you're on the bottom, um, sitting there on the bottom, then you don't have to exert too much energy to stay put. Mm-hmm. Have you gone? Um, have you done any kind of cross collaboration with um, any peers in Brazil, or have you gone to Brazil to to study them in their wild habitat? I haven't okay. um, either. I have not uh, collaborated with anyone um, who's doing research in uh, in Brazil, nor mm-hmm. have I uh, been to Brazil. Yeah, because because uh, uh. I guess for uh, well, one assumption would be that in Brazil it's such a common thing and it's such a I uh, dare I say boring in Brazil that that might not be a <laughs> fish that they'd want to to really research. But I guess for me, understanding and you know, bucket list. Actually, I say bucket list, but uh, twenty twenty, I absolutely want to go to. Um, uh, Peru and do a, a wild collecting trip and, you know, go into the actual Peruvian Amazon and, um, and experience that. But, um, knowing how the natives there catch that fish and seeing videos of when they go into these meat markets or fish markets that, um, armored catfish are actually something that is a food fish down there. So understanding, yes. you know, uh, how the natives there are catching the fish and if there's any, you know, like, man, like maybe they're doing a technique that, well, although I think what we're going to get to is that you guys are, are probably using a fairly, um, um, a fairly effective technique now with you with your harvesting of these guys uh but that seems like it'd be a pretty a pretty cool experience and then just to understand like as a food fish you know um possibly later in the conversation but understanding if there's any uh possibilities for this thing being a a, a food fish um but it, so as far as research progression then and i'm looking at the your publications and i love doing google scholar searches um, and actually what's great about your page and i'll have this link so people can check out the cool stuff that you've done you've got a whole bunch of publications that that you've um, authored or co-authored um how did your research and, and publications progress with this particular species well we started off with a reproduction study um and that was you know one where we collected data for um you know fairly long period of time, um, and then we started noticing with that first study that during the three years of, of uh, data collection that it looked like their reproductive patterns were changing. And how, and how it so? Wasn't some, so? Well, it looked like they were, um, you know, when you look at reproductive patterns, you're looking at things like uh, how many eggs do they lay? Um, and how large are those eggs? And can you get a sense of how frequently they might spawn? Things like that. And those can all be used as measures of how successful that species is um, at reproducing. So, you know, if you're looking at, um, you know, what percentage of the body mass of a female is made up of ovaries, um, you know, how much is she devoting of her energetic resources to reproduction? I mean, that that will tell you a lot. So a fish that's doing really, really well in their ecosystem is going to be able to devote a lot more energy to reproduction than a fish that's not doing so well um, in its ecosystem. And um, fish that make very large eggs uh, often are doing so because those embryos are going to need all that extra energy that's in the yolk of the egg to, to survive. Um, but if the ecosystem is really benign or, you know, is really good for that fish, then they can afford to make less yolky eggs, smaller eggs. Uh, they can make more eggs. Um, and those embryos are just as likely to survive as some other fish's big yolky eggs are. Oh, wow. So if you if you see fish going from making you know, starting to make more and more smaller eggs over time, um, they are adapting to their uh, their ecosystem. They're doing they're being more successful, and so that's what it looked like initially was that these fish were um, starting to produce more eggs. And it also kind of looked like they were um, starting to spawn a little bit earlier each year, or at least their ovaries were uh, what we call um, spawning ready, uh, kind of ready to go at a moment's notice. Um, But that first study, we didn't have enough data to say it was anything more than a trend. But I was intrigued. I thought this this could be the beginning of something. 
Um, and the reason this is so interesting is that invasive species like armored catfish are invasive because they're so very good at adapting to new ecosystems. That's huh. how they end up being yeah. so successful. Wow. And what's really cool about the about your research on, on, and the egg finding is that uh, a, a video that was actually just put out a couple of days ago or yesterday, maybe on uh, on YouTube on the Aquarium Co-op channel. So Corey had gone to a fish farm in uh, central Florida, and this mm-hmm. particular breeder is actually successful with clown loaches and a whole bunch of other synodontis uh, catfish. And one of the, uh, you know, bits of information that the breeder shared was, you know, when he gets um, his first generations, whether they're wild or from somebody else the females they don't have many eggs um and then as a few generations in maybe two years in uh, two generation two years worth of generations the females start producing way more eggs and it's you know probably a a comment well pointing to the research that you're talking about that you've done is that maybe in his breeding facility the females are more comfortable than where they came from previous breeding facilities and they're just you know it's a better environment for them and they're devoting less to um, just overall survival and they're able to pump more energy into that reproduction so to actually hear you with your in-field scientific research back that up um, or at least you know we can we can have this kind of comparison on that statement that was made in the video uh, that's really cool Yes, no, exactly. That's exactly what happens. It's like whether you, you have to either devote energy to um, you know, maintaining yourself um, or you have enough excess energy to spare that you can devote that to your offspring. And then when you look at what you do as far as your offspring, you can either make a few very large uh, eggs or you can make a whole bunch of very small ones. And so we... Um, returned to the reproduction study uh, 10 years after the beginning of the first one. And at that point, we were able to ha- to collect enough data to show very clearly uh, that there was a, a statistically significant change in their reproductive patterns. Um, in their expansion of their breeding season, uh, the number of eggs that they uh, lay at a time, and the amount um, of or the proportion of their body mass that's devoted to um, to ovaries, which is the gonadosomatic index. Oh wow! Wow, there's an index for that. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> it's really just a measure of the. It's a proportion of the body mass sure. that. So the mass of the ovaries divided by the mass of the uh, the body multiplied by a hundred. Oh wow! See, that could also be an episode title right there. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, my in my head, my comic head, like. They're at the point now where you just pick up a female and she just like spurts out eggs because, you know, she's just like, that's just how things have changed for them. It's it's practically that. I mean, they don't wow. really start you know spurting the eggs, but <laughs> sure, but yeah, sure. They're, it's mild a, pressure. It's a, yeah, it's a it's a big difference, and mm-hmm. I can I can pick up an armored catfish and make a pretty good guess about whether it's a male or a female based on its its body shape if it's an adult, wow. but. Um, and so no no wild pre- or no predators um, in the springs for these guys to, to predate on them and, and keep the population in check at all? There are predators. I mean, uh, if there are otters around, uh, otters will eat them or at least will eat a few bites of the tastiest uh, parts of the catfish. But there aren't consistently otters living in the spring run. Uh, alligators will eat them, um, but there aren't enough alligators. There, there are so many armored catfish that um, the predators that are out there, otters, alligators, when the catfish are little, uh, birds can eat them, you know, egrets and Mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, But once they reach a certain size, um, they can't be eaten by anything other than otters and gators. And there are just way too many of them. Wow. So we've kind of painted the picture of, you know, no, no real predators for these guys. Um, the breeding is just, you know, on this, dare I say, exponential kind of growth scale of, you know, they're, they're changing their, their physiology and they're, they're just be able to become so much more reproductively uh, fertile. Um, what else is happening then with these guys in, in the springs? Um, the other things really are their, uh, how they're affecting other um, springs residents and how they're changing the springs ecosystem. Those are um, the, the other big deals, and that's where we get the interactions with manatees and where we get to the nutrient contributions, otherwise known as the poo factor, um, <laughs> that we've been <laughs> that we've been working on over the years. Poop, poop, and fart jokes are perfectly fine on the Aquarius podcast. 
Yes, yes. Well, you know, this is something where, you know, the, my publication is about abundant feces, um, but my colleague and I have always talked about it as, as the catfish poo. Um, and this is something that you know, we've been sampling in the spring run for 20 years. And I noticed while snorkeling around that there was a fair amount of stuff that looked kind of like spinach linguine on the bottom of the spring run. And I figured out pretty quickly that that was armored catfish poo, and we weren't seeing um, poo from anything else in this, uh, other than manatees, but not seeing any other um, type of fecal material. Occasionally, you'd see some turtle feces, but uh, but this was kind of interesting to see all this this catfish poo. And then I started wondering how much of it is out there. It looked like there was an awful lot. So we devised uh, a way of studying this. Of, um, of surveying catfish poo in the spring run. Um, so got some uh, PVC, made some uh, little quadrats, and I spent a summer, actually several summers, um, and actually several other um, sampling times throughout the year, but throwing these quadrats out and photographing uh, wherever they landed and measuring the poo. Huh. And so uh, the quadrant, I, I thought where you were going with PVC was that you were going to like make little containers to scoop PVC or to scoop poo into the PVC. So what what is the quadrant then? The quadrant is just a square that is, that is a known size. And so I used a half meter by half meter uh, square of PVC, put a little gravel in there so it'll sink. And so I, I divided up the entire spring run in, with a grid so I could... Uh, randomly sample the entire spring run, and I would sort of lob the uh, quadrat, let it settle on the benthos, and then I could use the GoPro to uh, photograph that. And then, with that area of a known size, um, I can you know, have that on the computer and just kind of identify all of the pieces of poo and uh, and measure the length of them. Ah, and okay. then I'd have the number, you know, the amount of number of um, centimeters of uh, linear centimeters of poo per half uh, half meter square. OK, gotcha. And then as far yeah. as OK. And then as far as like chemical composition, and whatnot, uh, you were also sampling for that or, or having analysis run on it. Right. We also did some analysis on um, how much and what in the way of nutrients was leaching out of the um, the poo because you know there's a lot of it out there. So for example, we estimated there's about a, on any given day half a million cubic centimeters of catfish poo in the spring run. That's a lot. Yeah, so, half, that's that. Yeah, <laughs> Once you start kind of mind that half blowing, million. actually. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but that's you know, and we we figured that out by we had the linear you know poo and then we had measured the diameter, cross sectional diameter of a. a strand of poo as well. But anyway, um, so what would be the effect of that poo sitting there in the spring run? It's got to be doing something. It's not going to be um, completely inert. Mm -hmm. And so we um, we measured the, um, we looked at the, the nutrients that are uh, would be in the uh, fecal material. So uh, nitrates and um, total um, Keldahl um, nitrogen, phosphates, things like that, things that are normally in fertilizer. That's probably the simplest way to think about it. Um, and we ran some experiments with little flumes and little um, artificial streams in the lab so that we could collect the water that had passed over uh, the catfish poo and we could see what nutrients were coming out of leaching out of the um, the poo. And we found that it was um, leaching out nutrients. Um, and even though the amount of nutrients coming out from any you know, one sample of poo was fairly small, when you factored in the sheer n amount of poo in the spring run, then we had... Um, the significant amount of of nutrients that were being um, leached into the spring run by the armored catfish poo. And, and so that seems to me like 
as a result of all these nutrients, then you would just have an explosion of plant growth and you would just, um, you know, not knowing what the blue springs, although I, I feel like I've seen pictures of people diving in the blue springs and it looks like they're always swimming over very, very lush beds of like a valicinaria or some other type of like a water grass. Right. We don't have any valicinaria or any uh, eelgrass in the blue spring run. Um, other springs, I mean, it used to apparently, um, you know, 40, 50 years ago did have uh, eelgrass, but it does not now. In fact, that's um, that's actually one of the issues for the manatees. But all we really have in Blue Spring is algae, and the algae is worse um, now than it was when we started, although we have not, because we were focused on fish when we first started working in the springs, we don't really have a baseline of our own for what the algae is like. But uh, the algae situation in a lot of Florida springs has gotten worse, and the armored catfish certainly um, may be contributing uh, to that. And, you know, armored catfish are eating algae, diatoms and, and filamentous algae, things like that. And it's not just them eating the algae that's in the spring run. Part of the problem is that they are also going out into the river, feeding there, and coming back into the spring run and pooping and leaving the nutrients um, in the spring run that are coming, you know, they're bringing nutrients from the river back into the spring run. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they're it, adding. So, okay. So if they're only in theory, if they're only eating the algae in the spring run itself, then potentially they would be resulting in like a, <clears throat> in like a, like a, a less net on the, uh, on the, on the algae then. But the fact that they're bringing it in from the river and also pooping, they're then increasing the nutrient load and in- increasing the algae. Exactly. And one of the kind of weird things that uh, I noticed over the past, you know, 20 years of of harvesting catfish um, that I can't really explain, but um, I've taken out over 8,000 catfish in the past, say, 15 years out of the spring run. uh, And they used to be super common during the daytime. uh, And then they started becoming less common during the daytime as if somehow um, they had... Uh, not to anthropomize too much, but figured out that that bad things happen during the daytime in the spring run, um, namely me uh, harvesting catfish. So, um, but we and so we really started noticing this around, oh, say 2005 or six. Um, but the amount of poo did not change. So I knew that the catfish were. Uh, spending their days mostly out in the river, but coming into the spring run at night and eating algae and pooping in the spring run. So, uh, so yes, they're definitely doing a lot of bringing nutrients back in but, uh, to the spring. But that could be a thing, though, right? Like behavioral evolution in a, in a two-decade span. Like if, you, you know, if, you're, if you're harvesting so many of their buddies, they're going to eventually learn that, man, that, uh, that, that creature with the, uh, the fins and that little pokey stick, like that, I, we should probably avoid her. Yeah, I just don't know how much fish are you know, learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's where you know, I have to say then you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek that they're figuring things out because um, it's not like fish are going to be teaching their offspring you know, to avoid um, the predator. But something has changed. I just have not... Uh, don't have a good explanation for exactly how um, huh, that behavioral change came to be. So um, you're always kind of, as a scientist, have to be kind of leery of of um, who can learn, what species can learn, um, and, and how exactly mm-hmm. a behavioral change um comes to be. Hmm. I guess I'm thinking, are you getting these guys, like when you're actually harvesting them with your with your pole arm mechanism um, and I'm sure that you probably actually have a name for it other than yeah well, we're using a pole spear now <laughs> pole we're using spear. pole spears okay. yeah. so, so when you're or using Hawaiian. a pole spear are you um, my guess is that there's always going to be groups of them and so you're, you're getting the one and then the other ones are, are this you know fight or flight kind of experiences happening with them or are you exactly. able to single them out and get them and pick them off you know Navy SEAL assassin style one at a time without any of their friends knowing right well it's funny because uh, sometimes you, you know, you'll see a bunch of fish together and you go after one and um, the other ones scatter. Other times you spear one um, and the others don't move. Hmm. And you, know, you get the one fish off the spear, toss it in the canoe, and you can go right after the others. Um, so 
yeah, there's a, quite a wide range of responses from the fish. Other times, you, know, you hit one and it makes a pretty distinctive noise with the spear hitting the bone of the of the armor. Um, and that noise will startle other ones some distance away and they will take off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, quite a variety of, of changes, mm-hmm. the responses. I, I mean, it, it could be a very, very, you know, loose reach here or a stretch for me. But, you know, in my neighborhood, there are constantly black-tailed deer. They are incredibly friendly. They come right up to me. I mean, I could probably get one within two feet and feed it an apple, um, where I know if you go out in the wild to actually hunt them, um, it, it's just, you know, they're they're like a ghost. And so maybe, uh, now granted, that's going to be more like a hundred years of, of them being exposed to humans in this area versus, you know, the 20 years of your experience and brain size of a deer versus brain size of, a, of an armored cat fish but it just feels like unless there's something like you know increased amounts of sun because trees have been cut down along the springs and so that's why they're coming in at nighttime or increased daytime temperatures or or but then they're from brazil where it's freaking super hot anyway um, right and I, I do think they are they are responding to the um the effect of humans mm-hmm. um hunting them they mm-hmm. absolutely are i just I'm not enough of a fish behavioralist that I would want to venture gotcha. into, you know, into that. Gotcha. But yeah, I mean, I, I took out eight thousand one hundred and twenty-six of them <laughs> uh, according to my tally. And so counting. that's nice. a lot, you know. <laughs> are you are you like a so? Please tell me you're like this uh, crazy hitman where you actually get like a tattoo for every thousand of plecos that you get like on your shoulder as like a, a badge. Uh, yeah, of- <laughs> no, no, no tattoos, but I do keep a tally on the whiteboard in my office, and I'm oh. very proud of it. Oh my goodness! Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, because by law in Florida, if you if you catch a, an invasive species, like you have to dispatch of it, correct, or leave it. Um, where it can't go back into the water. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's um, the law or not, but certainly um, we're we're very glad to take them out. I unfortunately, because there are so many of them um, in Florida. I mean, they're established as a species. Um, it, we keep on taking them out, and they're going to keep on coming in from the river. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it feels pretty good to uh, feel like you're doing something. Mm-hmm. To help the the native ecosystem and the and the manatees, even if it's kind of short term. Yeah, because you're basically doing in freshwater now what people in saltwater have been doing with the lionfish. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, trying to plug a hole in the in the dike. Yeah. Although I hear that lionfish, well, they make excellent excellent tacos. Where pleco, we have yet to uh, to to check that out and see what. Well, that... I've heard. I've actually heard that. Um, that people who do harvest them, people from Central America um, who harvest them in Central Florida, um, will kind of you know make a curry out of it, kind of chop it up. I think you have to kind of cook it in the shell, so to speak, uh, because how are you going to skin an armored catfish? Mm-hmm. Um, but just more or less that eating the tail section, um, that it's not bad eating. Hmm. And I've heard conflicting information about whether the um, the roe is any good. Oh, I, Melissa, I think you need to experiment. I think we need to get oh, some, a, some culinary students in. And uh, Sadly, <laughs> yeah. I'm a vegetarian, so somebody oh, else will have to experiment. Oh, there, you, there you go. Well, we can, uh, I'm sure it's Stetson. There's got to be some type of a, a culinary program, right, that you can, you can get some of those uh, undergrad students to, to cook some up. So far, nobody has uh, has expressed any interest in doing that here. So, uh, so, so here in Se- mean, here in Seattle, we call him Master Breeder Dean, and he's also um, he's he's like a jack of all trades. He's been in the hobby for years and years. He's you know bred all sorts of crazy things, caught fish in the wild. And Dean, I just absolutely love that guy. And he's also um, like a, a world trained, classically trained culinary chef. And so uh-huh. I, I think we need to get Dean some uh, some of these common or. I say common plecos, but we need to get Dean some of these uh, armored catfish and see what he can come up with. Because he he's been down to Peru before, and I'm sure he's seen these guys in the market. Probably. So but yeah, I mean, usually I mean, when I was a, a master's student collecting deep sea fish, um, there always were some of the, particularly the male students who would look at whatever we'd hauled up in a deep water trawl and, and uh, you know wonder if that would make some you know good chipino <laughs> and uh, didn't matter what it was they always were wondering if that might be good to eat it, um, dudes are just always hungry i guess I don't know yeah I but, mean, some, but somehow none of my none of my students here have ever you know expressed an interest in trying to eat it and we're actually not allowed to eat anything that we capture in the in the state park because of oh okay it's not 
because it's coming from the state park or because you're because there coming, for research? Right, because it's coming from a state park, yes. Oh, and fishing is not allowed in a state park unless you're you're doing it with a, a scientific permit from uh, Fish and Wildlife. Gotcha. So I feel like an ichthyology student that has any passion for water or living creatures is going to love manatees and is going to want to take your classes and try to get out in the field with you. Like, is it, that seems like a true statement. Yes, I think it is. Students really do like getting out into the field. That's one of their favorite things about the classes that they take here. Um, and yes, there's a great deal of interest in um, seeing the manatees or or just um, spearing fish. I get people coming out of the woodwork wanting to help with um, armored catfish removal. Yeah, and so before we jump back into the a little bit more about manatees, like what are um, mm-hmm. do you actually teach some of these courses, or are you pur- purely research focused and kind of supporting no, I, the department? I teach as well. We all teach um, at Stetson, so I I teach a, a marine vertebrate biology course, for example, and we study manatees um, for that course um, as well. And I teach oceanography and, um, introductory biology. Okay. So that, that, that first course that you, um, that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. that's the one that would get some students potentially going out into the field with you? Yes. Marine vertebrate biology would. And then all of our students have to do uh, a kind of a capstone research project when they're um, a junior and a senior. And so we've had students, uh, the publications I have that are studying manatees that I had student co-authors. So students were doing their capstone project with the um, catfish manatee interactions. That's excellent. I mean, I, I feel like I've done a decent amount of uh, higher education, but I, I think I need to go and uh, take a course at Stetson and get in the water <laughs> with you. That sounds amazing. Uh, and so, okay, so uh, going back to manatees and armored catfish. So now uh, these guys are starting to they're starting to interact, right? So the armored catfish they're reproducing like crazy. They're pooping in the water. They're adding more algae into the Blue Spring Run. Um, what is the interaction like with the manatees? So I should set the stage a little bit with the manatees in Blue Spring, um, that Blue Spring is a constant uh, 72, 73 degrees all year round. So when the river gets cold, then the spring becomes a thermal refuge for manatees. Um, And the manatees may look like they're nice and fat and got plenty of of blubber to keep them warm, but they don't. Um, They have very little fat in their bodies at all, and so they're very susceptible to dying from cold shock. And so they will utilize warm refuges like springs or uh, power plant um, outflows where it's nice and toasty warm and stay warm in there. And then um, they need to make sure they also have a good um, food supply. But in Blue Spring, there is no eelgrass, which is their primary food. So there's nothing for them to eat in there. All they use Blue Spring for is to rest and stay warm. And what they are trying to do is stay as um, quiet as possible so they're not burning a lot of calories in the spring run. And then as soon as it gets sunny and warm during the day, they'll zip out into the river and eat there and then go back into the spring run to stay warm again. So the idea is to spend as much time staying quiet, conserving energy in the spring run, and as little time as possible out in the cold river eating. And that's where the catfish... Um, come into the equation is that the catfish will start to graze the um, algae that's growing on the manatee's skin. Manatees have very rough skin, and so the algae can kind of take hold Mm -hmm. on their skin. And so the catfish are um, on there just using their little sucker mouths and little soft, you know, bristly teeth to, to get that algae off. So they're not directly hurting the manatees by grazing. There's no wound or anything like that. But you may have seen pictures online where there might be 10, 20, 30, 40 catfish swarming all over a single manatee. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of horrifying um, sight. And what you'll see is all these catfish on the manatee, and the manatee then will kind of rise up off the the uh, bottom and maybe uh, twitch a fin or flip the tail or something or roll. Um, and the catfish will kind of come off of the manatee. The manatee will settle back down to the bottom and the catfish will come all back down onto the, um, the manatee. And so it looked like when we first noticed this, it looked like the catfish were uh, really annoying the manatee. And so what we did was 
um, videotape the interactions and we kind of quantified the different behaviors. So, you know, giving a high number score to uh, an active behavior, swimming fast by the manatee or uh, spinning along their long axis and then gave very low numbers to snoozing or very slow moving types of activities. Um, And we found that manatee that had catfish on them were significantly more active than manatee that did not have catfish attached to them. Mm -hmm. And that means then that manatee with catfish on them are more active, they're burning more calories in the spring run, and so then they're going to have to go out into the cold river for um, to feed more frequently, and that means they're much more likely to experience cold shock and potentially die because they've been disturbed by the, the catfish. Oh, wow. So, so how about sleep deprivation as well? Like, are they, are they trying to sleep in the in the blue springs yeah they they spend a lot of time resting um and so it it probably is um a a component of the being disturbed um they're in general they i mean manatee will do a lot of of kind of napping Mm -hmm. because they have to come up to breathe then they're never um you know completely out um, but they will nap and then come up, you know, for air maybe every 20 minutes or, or something like that. Um, but they're definitely not able to rest. And if you're not resting, yeah, you're probably not um, sleeping as much, um, and you're definitely burning a lot more calories. Yeah, yeah. Because um, in my head, it's like, all right, uh, you know, summertime, or you're in the shade, you're on a hammock, pretend you're in a speedo, and you're trying to get rest, and all of a sudden you've got a hundred little flies on you. You know, and and every 10 seconds you have to like twitch yourself like you're not going to be able to get a deep state of sleep. You're not going to get rest. You're not going to hit your REM cycle. So, you you know, just trying to draw that, um, you know, that that connection to a manatee then with this same kind of situation of the sucker mouth catfish, which are probably, well, I don't know if they've got thicker skin. Maybe maybe it's a similar sensation, but like that get real old real fast. And I feel like I wouldn't be able to get any rest. And so you're burning calories, you're more susceptible to sickness, and then you're just that irritated, um, you know, sleep deprivation. And after a while, that just gets dangerous. Right. And I don't know anything really about sleep patterns in manatee. So I don't know that they have uh, REM sleep or if they, you know, get irritable, things like that. But they definitely, definitely the, the energetic balance is, has changed. Um, And the really dangerous thing for manatees is that, you know, there, you could probably, you know, list, uh, you know, maybe we'll just say five or six different um, major, um, kind of stress factors for them. Um, And instead of the stress factors um, adding up uh, for for manatees as far as the the risk to their health, uh, they don't add up, they multiply. So anytime you you put an additional risk factor in there, it's making their situation a lot more dire uh, than it would if you were just adding another risk mm-hmm. factor in. What is what is their classification right now for the manatee, the, their um, endangered I classification? I believe they're threatened um, that they downlisted them. The, the populations have been going up. Oh, good. Um, but the problem is we don't really know what a healthy population should be. It certainly has gone up wonderfully over the past, you know, 30, 40 years. But what is healthy, you know, is... Um, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000, is that enough to maintain a healthy, um, you know, genetically healthy population of manatees? Um, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Now, what percentage of manatees would you say utilize Blue Springs as a refuge for these colder, for the colder season um, in relation to the, the larger population? Well, th- there are about, I think, 500 Manatees, 500 and something, 20 manatees, I think, is the largest number of manatees that have been in Blue Spring at any one time. Um, I don't know the size of the population that lives in the St. John's River, which is a fairly distinct population from those that are mostly um, out in the ocean. They're the West Indian manatee has a Florida subspecies, and then um, 
that subspecies has several populations where there are a whole bunch of manatees that most spend most of their lives in, in the St. John's River, but they will go out into the ocean, mm-hmm. right? So there's, um, there are probably, um, there could be a couple hundred more manatees beyond that 520 that occasionally show up in the spring run, but it's it's a good number of them in Blue Spring. They've they've been doing very well in this part of the St. John's um, drainage. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the fear is that the well, if they're not already there, the these um, armored catfish would just spread out through the rest of the the manatees' habitats, right? So it's not just Blue Springs. It's um, did you say it was the St. Johns? Right, the St. John's okay. River. They're yeah, they're throughout the St. John's River. They're throughout Florida. They're mm-hmm. they're everywhere. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, they're they're kind of they're already they've already established themselves um, mm-hmm. everywhere. And, and so, how's the partnership been with like the Florida Florida legislative body, Florida um, you know Department of of Fish and Wildlife or Natural Resources or whatever that department is called in your particular in your state um, as a as a partner in this effort? Well, certainly working with the the park system. Um, the Department of Environmental Protection, um, which is where I get the uh, permits, that's all been been great. Um, working with the St. John's River Water Management District, um, that's also been uh, been really good. And we certainly are um, are heartened by uh, what looks like some real movement in protecting um, freshwater springs uh, by the state government. So, uh, so we'll see. It's a constant battle with. Um, the needs or the wants of people for uh, for fresh water, uh, both for drinking, for for irrigation, for recreation, um, and then balancing that with a with a healthy ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And as far as uh, what we could be doing as a public or as the, the the agency bodies to help combat this the the armored catfish in the Blue Spring State Park because it, it from reading an article this year it sounds like it's an incredibly compressed time window of when you're able to go in there and actually spear these guys right so that generally we don't go in there during the manatee season which is mid-november to mid-march uh, because there are so many manatees in the spring run um, that we it's just too much of a of a risk so the things that I mean that people can do I and mean, we need to really get the message out there that if you have these fish in fish tanks um, and they get too big for the tank or you don't want it anymore that you do not let it go in the wild um, you may not want the you know fish to to die you know maybe you don't want to uh, put it down for the long nap in the freezer um, or find a place to to give it away, but the damage that these things can do to native ecosystems are um, are really pretty uh, impressive, and so we need to stop releasing exotic species. And then the other thing is that you know we're not going to be able to get rid of armored catfish. Right? I mean they're here to stay um, because they they've established themselves. But we can do other things that will help to protect native species like manatees, for example. Um, Speed zones on the river may not be super popular with uh, with boaters, but that is something we can control. We can control how fast we're going in the river and how and how many boat strikes there are. I mean, manatees die pretty frequently from being run over by boats. Um, we can control that. Um, we can't control the armored catfish being here, but we can control some of these other human risks. Um, to native species. And do we tend to find the boat strikes, like are they are they occurring in, in popular recreation areas where we've got uh, people that are you know, uh, wakeboarding or water skiing, or are they happening more in kind of compressed areas where maybe it's like a guy on a bass boat or, you know, something like that? I suspect it's mostly people on, you know, people don't, don't tend to water ski um, in the St. John's. Um, so I think it's mostly um, people who are just out um, boating, uh, you know, fishing or um just going out for, you know, uh, a boat ride, but they want to go fast. People like to go fast. I mean, I can understand um, that desire, but um, we've got these slow-moving mammals that are pretty unique to Florida, and we really just have to protect them. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and it, it, as far as um, you know the is there an opportunity for the public to outside of the of the springs to be more active in you know again being like the lionfish populations in uh, you know in, on on the coast to be more active in spearfishing for these these particular catfish like is that something where that'd be kind of nice like how they're going out for the for the pythons in the everglades they're you know it's, yeah, it sounds like any old would. citizen can jump in their truck and go look for pythons which you know my hat's off to you cuz pythons are scary right right now, it, I mean, it's an appealing uh, idea, but the problem is that the St. John's River is a black water system. Oh. So it's dark. Yeah, yeah. And we've got an awful lot of alligators. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's there's no uh, there's no snorkeling in the river. Um, you really um, – and because they're herbivores, you know, it's highly unlikely you'd get it to take any kind of, of bait. But, yeah, in some shallow water areas, um, you'd be able to see well enough – to spear from shore, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not very practical. Uh-huh. Um, I'd heard of some, um, some years back, um, some people were harvest, trying to harvest them for uh, fish meal fertilizer, um, but using nets, but there's so many snags, you know, big trees and things are down in the river. Um, they get caught up on that and armored catfish, um, you know, when they uh, kind of lock their fins in place, they are, are kind of difficult, uh, rough on, on nets as well and hard to get out. So that I don't think lasted very long. Wow. So then no, nothing like the invasive carp then, uh, that you're kind of able to just go out on a boat in a river and just, you know, take your net and scoop up, you know, dozens and dozens of, of carp. It's, it's a much uh, trickier right. game to go after. Exactly. And I guess with some, you know, some of these carp, I guess it's, the, I guess it's a silver carp. All you have to do is, you know, run your engine and, and they they're going to start out, leaping yeah. out of the and water. They, yeah. And they yeah. freaking hurt you, I guess, right? They're yes, like 40 exactly. pound fish exactly. and you're smashing into it at 20 miles an hour. Yeah. Well, yeah. They can, they so, can do some damage. So there you go there. Let's let's in, now you're going to kill me for this, but let's introduce that silver carp into your St. John's and then that'll stop people from going fast. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> no, we we will not do that. The Aquarius podcast does not support releasing invasive species into uh, into waterways. So please don't do that. Right, right, yeah. And and some people will say. I, mean, I actually had somebody tell me um, that they were going to. Uh, they thought they should be releasing more of these armored catfish into Blue Spring because uh, they knew that they were often used as algae eaters in fish tanks. Um, they they knew we were taking them out and and. Sh- she thought that we should be putting more of them back in instead. And it's like, no, 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 no. They may be eating the algae, but they're they're pooping it right back out again. And so that's uh, I, not going to help. I hope that was just kind of like an average John off the street and not like a credentialed academic, right? Correct. Okay. Not, <laughs> definitely not an academic. Um, just to somebody who, you know, wanted to do the best thing for the, the oh, spring, man. but really didn't understand um, the concept of... Uh, of what the fish were doing and and what we try to do for for natural yeah. ecosystems. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not one to step in and tell people how to run their business, but I, I would really hope that uh, you know some of the, some of the fish farms or people that are still importing these particular species, which I know Brazil clamps down pretty hard on what you can import now, but I don't necessarily think that this particular type of, uh, this, you know, this genus or this, you know, the, the one of three species of these kinds of invasive catfish are on that, are on that ban list. But I would hope that our U.S.-based importers are, you know, conscious of what is happening and realize that, you know, this is kind of a blight on the tropical fish hobby and that this is something that could draw a lot of negative attention and that they would self-govern and stop um, you know, breeding and importing this particular species of fish like that, that would you're, be, you're jesting, right? I mean, that would be, that would be my hope, right? Because that, you know, would, that would be a wonderful thing, but you I, know, have we, I, have I, we seen that happen yet in the pet trade where, n- n- um, yeah, no, I, I, I know, I know like not, So I would, I would venture to guess that almost everybody that listens to my podcast would know, yep, armored catfish, common plecos, those get massive. I don't want those in my tank. Yep. When I first got into the hobby, I had one, but I don't anymore. Yeah, it's unfortunately yeah. it's it's the families that go into a pet. I don't even want to drop their names, but a big box fish store where these things are commonly sold and the tr- yep. the staff isn't as well versed and they're not as trained. They may be in, you know, guinea pig land one day and in, in covering in aquatics the next. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that's the cleaner fish. You always need one of those. Um, like, I, I just really hope that they would see that there's negative attention being drawn. Right. The manatee is a treasured and beloved, you know, 
just goofball creature that wants to hug you in the water for the most part. Like we need to protect that. And you know, if, if this course continues, like, you know, we, you don't want to draw negative attention to yourself, right? Like you already, people already say that the tropical fish hobby is in somewhat of a decline and that things aren't as great as they used to be decades ago. So why further a a negative on your, on your industry, right? Like why, why bring this negative stigma on you? So maybe we self-govern, maybe we stop selling that fish. Maybe we go a little bit deeper on guppies and maybe some of the smaller lorecarid species. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, I really, I mean, I think that there are a lot of, of people who are you know, into the aquarium trade who are very responsible and understand um, the situation that that can occur when you get a species that goes invasive. Um, but I think that it's going to, it would take a very long time to ever really get a, a, a grip on um, the import of of a lot of species of really figuring out first before you start importing it, let's find out if it has any invasive tendencies. Um, and then there are a lot of these fish, you know, are probably being collected locally, you know, that they're, they're doing well enough here that I bet a lot of the uh, pet stores are getting their uh, armored catfish from uh, local collectors, Oh wow! <laughs> you know, collect the eggs um, and then uh, hatch them and, you know, or get them at you know, fish farms and things like that. I doubt that a lot of them are being imported. Wow, that's um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I I didn't think of that. Um, but for the most part, though, I mean, it's you know, it's it's an unfortunate thing. But this is kind of you know exclusive to just Florida, right? As far as you guys have the right conditions for most of these tropical fish, or are they able to survive in you know Louisiana or Georgia or somewhere that you know maybe like a South Carolina? I'm, I'm trying to I'm a little bit rusty on my Southeast uh, U.S. geography right now. No, they're they're in South Carolina. Um, it's, it's a Pamlico Sound. I've read of them there. Um, they're throughout the um, southeast. They, I've read about them in um, Texas, um, like in the Houston area, going from Bayou to Bayou. So oh, they wow. clearly have some tolerance for salt. They're in um, you know the, in the Caribbean, like in Puerto Rico. I know has them. They're they're big in the Philippines, uh, Taiwan. Um, they're in India. Um, they're kind of spreading all over the place. But, I mean, in the U.S., yes, Florida and uh, Hawaii, which also has them, mm-hmm. are the ones that have the, the worst um, invasive species um, issues. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah and, that, and that's part of the whole reason of, you know, me wanting to have somebody on to talk about this situation is that, you know, I love this hobby and I want to see it thrive and I want to see everybody in the hobby make, whether you're a consumer, you're a hobbyist, or you're actually an importer or a breeder, that we all make smart decisions and we all think about the implications of our decisions um, and that goes to selling stuff right like if you're going to sell something think about what could potentially happen if this gets out in the wild like is it something that's just going to flounder and die because it can't it has to survive in 95 degree water that's you know it has a ph of 10 or is it something that man if it got out and you know the southeastern you know united states would potentially be a perfect home for this um, and unfortunately, I think this is probably one of those things where it's hindsight's 2020 um, that, you know, you'd have to have a lot of, you know, foresight to have known that this kind of fish was going to wreak such havoc on, um, you know, the, the chemical composition of water and algae blooms and harassment of manatees. Oh, absolutely. There's, it's very difficult to predict mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. But, but that being said, you know, if you're importing gigantic snakes, if you're, you know, bringing in reptiles and, you know, you're breeding fish, especially if you're in Florida, you know, uh, I don't know, like make sure that you're educating as best you can, educate yourself on what you bring in, uh, protect against the hurricanes, right? Because hurricanes, they come in and they, they, they flood and then these fish pens get flooded, right? And then they all somehow end up in the natural waterways. Is, is that That's one of the ways that these things have gotten out as well. Exactly. And they can, they can travel cross country on their own too, if it's really wet. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Because they can air breathe and they've got those stiff pectoral fins. They can, um, they're not walking catfish, but they can sort of walk. Mm-hmm. So, Melissa, so yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's craziness. So Melissa, thank you very much for, uh, for coming on. And I'm going to make sure I've got a link to Stetson university. If people want to check out what your university is all about, I'll have a sure. link to your faculty page as well. Are there any other online resources, um, any particular videos or any, um, you know, articles that you would like me to link as well, or that you'd will, that you'd like listeners to know about? I probably could send you some. There was something that the Orlando Sentinel did um, a couple of weeks ago that was uh, 
fairly entertaining description of of what we do out in the spring run. But uh, but I think that you've managed to find most of the things that <laughs> I think that I was I was internet stalking done. before the episode. So <laughs> yes, yes. Well, listen. But no, I, I certainly enjoyed being on the podcast. So no, awesome. Uh, Thank you very much. You. Yeah, people are, You're are welcome. Yeah, people are definitely going to get a kick out of this episode, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too.